All right, welcome to Bet the Edge. I am a giddy Jay Croucher, Josh Giddy. Uh, I guess I think the Boston Celtics I think they're going to do this from 3-0 down. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. We're also going to talk about the French Open, outrights, and quarter markets now that the draw is set. But we're going to start off talking about the Indy 500. Uh, so we welcome in Steve Latart, NBC's own, uh, head of the, the big race on Sunday. Steve, thanks for being with us. Uh, what are your biggest observations so far at the Brickyard? Well, well, first of all, you know, it's the 107th running for the Indy 500, the biggest sporting event on the globe. I mean, there'll be 325,000 fans here. If you can imagine it, 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 it turns into one of the bigger cities in the country for a single day. And and for that reason, I think betting it is a blast. It reminds me a little of the Kentucky Derby, right? You're going to have a lot of casual eyes on it, a lot of casual viewers, and it's a star-studded international lineup. And I think that's really the key. The key is I believe it's the hardest race to win in the world. And for that reason, betting it is very difficult. Alex Pelot, uh set a new four-lap. Think about this. Four laps average of over 234 miles an hour, so the speeds are high. He's coming in as the favorite about six to one. Um I'm okay with that because I think he's good enough to do it. Padua Ward is a Mexican driver driving for uh, Arrows McLaren. Tons of speed, young, flashy. You know, I like it. I don't like it at 7-1. Dixon, I think, is the value on the board at 8-1. to one. He's the best car here every year. He's found every way to lose it, full of heartbreak. And, Drew, as you and I both know, right, we got to just keep firing the favor. Eventually, the guy that <laughs> has to win, right? Isn't that the case? The better team has to win at some point. I, I mean, I, so is that your general process for the Indy 500? Because, like, every race is unique, right? Sometimes it's literally like pole position is all that matters. Sometimes it's if you have the best car. Sometimes it's like if you're a driver that can handle this particular type of course, you have the advantage. Like, what 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 is your general, you know, kind of process when it comes to Indy? Is it literally just best car, let's go fire? Best car, and actually, I look for some ten to twenty to one numbers, just because it is the hardest race in the in the world to win. It's a five hundred mile race. IndyCar doesn't get a lot of five hundred mile races. So you talk about qualifying, say Formula One, Monaco, that'll start the day off on Sunday, and the pole winner is going to be minus money to win, if you can imagine it. Right? There's just very few uh, overtakes in that. This will be anything but that. There's so many ways to lose it, and for that reason, I think there's some interesting value down the board. Takuma Sato, um, he's a one off, really driving the same equipment as Erickson last year's winner and Dixon. So I think he's going to be one of the guys to watch. And if you want to bet with your true heart, Tony Kanaan, um, he, he's the fan favorite. He's going to get the biggest cheer. He has a tremendous amount of experience here. He's also in a McLaren that I think can win. So it isn't just a you know NBC storyline of the big star going out. This is a big star sitting and winning equipment. I think you can shop him around at like 18 or 20 to 22 to 1. So I think you want to have a little piece on that just because it's a great storyline and you hate to think you missed it completely, right? You want to be, you want to be cheering with the rest of the fans. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I like that. Uh, Marcus Erickson, he was 15 to one last year and he got it done. And now he's plus 850 uh, this time around. What do you think of his chances to repeat that? He's the sneaky Swede, very quiet, doesn't say very much. He was off the radar last year. Unfortunately, he's on the radar this year. Um, it makes it harder. People know you're here. The pressure's here. I think he feels the enormity of the event. The pageantry of the Indianapolis 500 is one of the most spectacular things on Memorial Day weekend. But think about as a as a competitor. You know, those 30 minutes, you realize you're in the biggest race in the world. And last year, he was in it. This year, he's the defending winner. You know, for that reason, 
I have a little bit of concern. Um, and it's just because the odds, if we're, you know, we're here on here talking betting. Do I think he could win? Yes. Do I like him at eight and a half? No, I need, I need Marcus Erickson at 12, 13, 14 ish. Um, that's the problem I have with Pillow at six. I need Pillow at eight to 10 to see some value there. That's why I think the best value on the board is Dixon at eight to one. Uh, just because I think in my mind, he's the favorite and the books disagree. Sometimes when that happens, that's your best bet. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Erickson, of course, uh, he won the first uh, race of the season. Uh, impressive running, different, very different course. Came out uh, in the next uh, the next week and was, I thought, pretty disappointing uh, at the Texas Speedway, which is a more kind of similar type of uh, you know, racing course to what we're expecting here in Indy. So uh, I agree with you. Eight fifty, not a bet. Um, but uh, let let's kind of go back to the current favorite here, uh, Alex Polo. Plus 600 is, I mean, that's, that's a lot for the toughest race in sports as you've kind of laid out pretty clearly here. Um, you know, what is it going to take for him ultimately to justify this price? And, uh, and do you think realistically that, um, you know, this is a, a setup for fade the favorite? Uh, this is a fade the favorite for me. It always is. You know, what makes great sporting events is heartbreak and heartbreak usually happens when the favorite can't perform. And, and that's what I see here. I think Alex Pillow, he's a champion in this field. Uh, you know, he, he knows what he's doing, but he, he's de- he's deserving of the odds because of his pace. You know, when a Honda filled fast six a week ago, he outran them. Excuse me, in a Chevrolet filled, he outran them in a Honda, which you're like, oh, man, this guy's going to be the best. But but, you know, two and a half hours, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. What I think is very interesting is Team Penske isn't really represented in the top five or six favorite drivers. And while they haven't shown the speed, Drew. You know, where Alex can trip up, can be on and off pit road, pit stop, so much goes into it. That's where Team Penske kind of exceeds, right? They, they, that's where they exceed expectation. They're just so efficient. Um, you're going to look at five or six, seven pit stops. Um, you know, it's it's so difficult to win this race. That reason, yeah, I'm fade the favorite. The highest the highest ranked driver I would have would be Scott Dixon in my, in my betting okay. team. I, I just can't see Polo or Pato. Not for those odds. Look, if the book know what they're doing. If right? I'm Don't sing- give me yeah. the front. So if I'm singling an IndyCar driver with a uh, Coca-Cola 600 driver, Dixon's the guy? I would. It would be me. It would be uh, Scott Dixon, Kyle Larson. Okay. Put them together. Try to Scott get some multiplier Dixon. odds. Right. I found another bet out there that you got to get. You got to have to get like 25 or 30 to 1 on that. But a Penske driver winning either location is an interesting one because I don't think they're favorites mm-hmm. either. That doesn't mean they can't win. Um but it's an, it's an exciting time for racing for sure. Yeah. Last one for you, Steve. In terms of live betting the race, which is becoming more of an element uh, of betting, obviously, across the board and also for the Indy 500, is there anything that you would look out for in terms of someone you expect might you know start slow and then come home with a head of steam after their odds drift a little? Or how do you think the race might ebb and flow? You know, so, Jay, we talk about this a lot each week um, on Dirty Mudo, another podcast I'm on weekly. And – the live bet has become a really interesting move for the racing fan. And my theory is, you know, a good racing ticket each week has five, six, seven winners, usually on your ticket. And I tell everybody, if you can get even money on your money, take your live bet and run. Uh, because you normally, over the course of a, a three-hour event, you're going to get even money on two or three of your drivers, and that kind of make your whole day. So to your point about Polo as the favorite starting up front, I don't think his live money is going to help much because he's starting up front. But, but when you talk about those Penske drivers, I think you can get them at pretty long odds because of where they're starting. 
And then if they have a good first, say, 200 miles and cycle towards the front, you're going to have a great live bet buyout option to get out. Um, And I think that's the key. I actually, Drew, to your point about Pelot, if I was going to take Pelot, I would sit on my hands and wait for the live bet. Because there's going to be at some point where he's not in the front five, and I bet you're going to get it longer than six to one. I bet you're going to get a 10 to one on Alex Pelot at some point in 500 miles. So, Jay, it's a complicated answer, but the simple fact is anybody starting outside the top nine, um, I would look for a buyout because if they have a good first couple hundred miles, you can just get even money on your bet and get out of Dodge. Yeah, that's a good point. And I will say as well that, uh, you know, someone who used to work on trading these types of live events, uh, sometimes books are slow in adjusting and drifting guys. You're much more uh, focused on shortening guys who are making a run and potentially, you know, you let the guys, uh, you let them sit at seven to one when, you know, they should be pushed out to 10 to one, 12 to one. And there's an opportunity to uh, to cash out if, uh, if, you're paying, uh, if you're paying attention. Steve, thanks so much for your time. Can you let people know uh, how you're involved with the coverage of the Indy 500 and also any other content that you're working on? Well, listen, it's a big weekend of racing. Indy 500 starts at Peacock at 9 a.m. We have a big two-hour pre-race show from 9 to 11. Myself, Dale Jr., Danica Patrick, Mike Tirico, and our normal IndyCar gang of Hinchcliffe, Bell, and, and Diffie. Then we switch over to NBC. I get all the fun stuff. I get all the pre-race. When they take the green flag, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to find a suite and a beer. And I'm going to cheer my friends <laughs> on as they cover the Indy 500. I get to be a fan this year, which I'm excited about. It's the greatest day in racing all Sunday um, from Formula One to Indy to NASCAR, it, it's a great time. And every week, um, you could turn in uh, Dirty Mo Doe. You can get that where I get all your gambling podcasts. Myself and a couple of my buddies talk NASCAR lines each and every week. Uh, Drew, Jay, we're going to have to have you on there. You can you can help us sharpen our pencils a little bit. There's so many NASCAR bets each week. The books are growing. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to talk about. Absolutely love it. And everyone can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Latard. Good luck with the coverage, Steve, with the suite and with the beer. Look forward to speaking to you soon, mate. Great. Thanks, guys. Cheers. All right, before we get into the French Open at Roland Garros, just a reminder while you're watching coverage of the Indy 500 on NBC Sunday, you can also stream MLB leadoff on Peacock, where we're featuring exclusive live games all season long, including this week as we feature a powerhouse matchup between the Dodgers and the Rays, potentially the two best teams in baseball. Coverage begins at 11 a.m. Eastern. All right, we've got our draw, Drew, for uh, Pachy. And uh, there's lots of great news for a few people, like uh, Carlos Alcaraz and Igor Piantek, for instance. Uh, but what's your breakdown of the women's bracket? Uh, outright, quarter markets, what do you like? Well, it's a fascinating, uh, you know, set of circumstances that we kind of laid out. Um, I think pretty well, uh, foreshadowing on Wednesday, uh, we kind of, uh, you know, it was pretty clear that, um, uh, you know, you had a three horse race really in the women's side and wherever, uh, robot Kina was going to end up on the top or the bottom, uh, it was going to influence the, uh, the other kind of major contender, uh, because, uh, you know, not only are you going to have to now beat, uh, you know, uh, you're gonna have to be if you're if you're eager now with Rabakana on the top, you have to beat Rabakana presumptively in the semifinals and then face Sabalenka in the finals. So that just makes your road that much tougher. Um, you're not gonna only have to face one of the two. And the flip side of the coin is Sabalenka only will have to face one of those two uh, and presumptively Iga. And you know, you, you if you're, she's a little fresher, if she's a little sharper, then uh, it maybe gives her a little bit more of a a leveling effect in the final itself. And so for all of those reasons, I think Sabalenka is your pre 
flop bet at price. Seven to one uh, is bettable in my mind. Uh, my fair price uh, for Sabalenka uh, is plus five twenty five. So uh, I think anything sh- you know, anything better than that, put it in your pocket, uh, and you know, you're just hoping that chaos reigns on top. Now, Rabaka is not a great clay player. She could go out early, and I think. You know, looking for some long shots in Q2 where Rubakina, uh is located is 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 a little bit of wise coverage because ultimately, if Iga's path gets easier because some of her major contenders flame out in you know surprising fashion early in this contest, then all of a sudden uh, you may have a sharpened and uh, very dangerous Iga head to head against Sabalenka in the final here. At which point, you know, maybe Sabalenka doesn't have much of a chance. You know, she's in a single match situation in a neutral situation. On this on this court, Iga uh, has about a seventy-two to seventy-five percent win probability over Sabalenka. So Sabalenka is going to need Iga to either get upset or take some damage before they play in the final. If she realistically, you're going to get that seven-to-one price home. Does that all make sense? Yeah, that all makes sense. And speaking of Q two, uh, I want to bring up a name um, that is tough to say. Really, Ostrava, uh, <laughs> who had a win in Charleston with some good wins uh, as part of that run where she beat Kasatkina, she had Benchich in the final, and then she's dealing with an injury. Like, where's Ons at at the moment? Because if she, I mean, Q oh, two looked relatively doable because Rabakina, as good as she is, like Clay is not her surface. Um, I mean, does Ons have any prayer? You so you, you surprised me there <laughs> when you're like it's going to be tough to say. I'm thinking, oh, like tough to pronounce. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, you said tough to say it, emotionally tough to uh, say. Of course, Ons uh, Jabor. This is we could go on and on, man. Um, <laughs> so if you look just purely at her clay statistics from this season alone, she's a top four player. Uh, and you know, you you compare her run in Charleston to the way she performed on on that same surface last year. It would tell you she's taken a step forward. If you look at what happened to her Roland Garros last year, where she got popped early, that was entirely a product of the fact that she played. She played in one Madrid, went back to back, went to Rome, went deep in Rome, made it to the finals, and she was completely out of gas. She was you know ready for grass season, like a, a mission accomplished. You know, like she really had nothing to prove at Roland Garros, and now the shoe is really on the other foot because she has not really been able to defend nearly as many points as she uh, should have to this point in the season. She's been dealing with injuries. She's been dealing with fitness injuries. You know, fitness issues. You look at her recent performances, and there's retirements, there's you know bad losses, uh, and so it's it's a little spooky to get involved with Jabour. But at price in Q2, you almost have to take it. She's like six to one to win that quarter, which is kind of crazy because she's the best player in that quarter. If she finds fitness over the balance of you know the first week and change here, uh, you know she probably comes out of Q2. Um, you know, even against the mighty, uh, uh, you know, uh, even against the mighty robot Kina, uh, she's a much better clay player. So if, if she can get fit, she's going to be, uh, you know, she's going to be a, a, a bet that you will want to have had in pocket. I have not fired yet in full transparency, but my numbers say, don't be an idiot. Go bet that quarter. Yeah. Uh, there are two bets that I'll always walk with a limp from um, above any else. That's uh, Jonathan Taylor, Offensive Player of the Year last year, and uh, an Ostrober at, at Wimbledon after she won yeah. the first bet. I didn't get out at the 9-1 to one on her back, and I always walk with a limp from that one. But, uh, yeah, I do wish the best for Ons, um, unlike Yannick Sinner, who's also cost me dearly, but I wish him nothing but the worst. Um, Q1 you know, on the women's side, which is an absolute just 
It's incredible. <laughs> to read the names that they're all in the same quarter. Sviantek, Krajikov is nine to one to win a quarter. Uh, Goff, twelve to one. Like Goff has been close to twelve to one to win tournaments. Um, not too. Uh, not too long ago. And then even like Kudamatova and Keys, Azarenka, Andreescu, like these are some huge names. Is there any value in this quarter? Yeah, there absolutely is. And it's the uh, fifth choice. Veronica Kudermatova at 18 to 1 is crazy. It's crazy. She's the second best player in this draw. Um, she's on the weaker side. So basically the way this works is Iga and Krachikova are the two best you know, by market, those are your two highest rated players. They run into each other in round four. Only one of them will make the quarterfinal, presumptively Iga. Kudermatova gets to go through a softer path. Uh, Coco Goff has taken an enormous step backwards this season relative to last year in terms of quality of play on the same surfaces against weaker competition. She's not performing as well. So realistically, she is the bet against in the bottom half of Q1. Kudermatova comes through. She did not fare well at all in the semifinals of Madrid against Iga. I think Iga beat her 6-1, 6-1, and it was not even that com- not it, like that doesn't sound competitive. It wasn't even that competitive. Like it was uh, an absolute whitewashing. So uh, realistically, you're hoping Krachikova either does damage to Iga or just outright upsets Iga, or maybe Iga has a little bit of a hamstring thigh thing going on that. You know, somehow uh, she doesn't make it to that stage of the tournament. Um, but whatever the case is, Kudermatova should be closer to five to one to get out of this quarter by my numbers. And so 18 to one is an absolute steal. Uh, it's a long shot. It's probably not going to win, but I think you have to have that in pocket. Yeah, I like that with Kudermatova because when when she's on, she's got like a kind of better version of Sam Sonova thing where she just yeah. becomes unplayable. Like I remember what... Speaking of Jabir, like she just ruined Ons in San Jose last year. And then also they played in the US Open and Ons had to play like an 11 out of 10 game to beat um, Kudamatova there. So I uh, certainly like her and her upside. And yeah, for her to be 18 to 1 to win any quarter at a Grand Slam, <laughs> big. and obviously like this is the hardest quarter that you're ever going to come across, but still... That's a massive price, so I'm with you there. Let's talk about the men's side where uh, Carlos Alcaraz uh, certainly suffered from the draw, which is absolutely brutal for him, and his outright price drifts accordingly. Novak does too because he's on Carlito's side of the draw. Think uh, Rune and Sinner, my man Sinner, are the two big winners, but uh, what's your breakdown of the outright and, uh, and any quarters that you like? Yeah, in the same sort of spirit as we were saying with the imbalance on the women's side, there's an imbalance on the men's side as well. Um, the two clearly best players in this draw, Alcaraz and Djokovic, uh, are on the top, meaning that somebody is going to come through the bottom and only have to face one of those two players. That opens the door for, as you mentioned, Rune and Sinner. Uh, but the big betting swing has been Medvedev. I mean, this yep. time last week, Medvedev had not won Rome, and he was 25-1 to <laughs> to win this tournament, and now he is 9. That is an enormous, enormous swing, having seen him play, I think, two matches against the likes of Rude and Rune or something like that. I can't remember even who he beat in the semis and finals in Rome. They know he beat Rune in, in the finals. Um, but, yeah, congratulations for beating two young players and a surface that suits you. That, that you know, it was, it was the right kind of conditions for him to do well there, and he has a mental advantage over those guys. And now it's gotten short to the price where you can't bet Medvedev at 9-1, to one, in my mind. That's, that's, uh, that is... Uh, an aggressive adjustment is correct, but it's aggressive. And so at this point, uh, I th- I think uh, the only bet in the outright markets on the men's side is Djokovic in the in the plus two fifty range. Um, 
the degree of the 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 difference in experience in best of five tennis between Djokovic and everyone else outside of Medvedev maybe uh, is just spectacular. Djokovic has played 425 best of five matches in his career. He has a 90% winning percentage in those matches. Uh, and you know Carlos Alcaraz, in contrast, you want to guess he's played uh, 31 best of five tennis matches in his career uh that is a that is a gulf bigger than the atlantic ocean jay uh and it mad that matters experience matters you got to learn how to navigate best of five tennis it's a different beast than best of three where alcaraz has solved all the problems so uh, i think realistically that gives Djokovic an advantage i would expect almost certainly that is your head-to-head semifinal i don't think for, forget about shopping for quarter prices in Q1, unless for some reason you think Sissipas has got the answers for Alcaraz, in which case you want to bet him in Q1, go right ahead. I am out on that. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think Alcaraz, uh, Djokovic, you are headed for a, a collision course there uh, in, in the top half of the draw. I think Djokovic comes through and I think Djokovic likely uh, wins this title. Um, and it's not like the bet of the year. Plus 250s doesn't really get your heart going <laughs> the same way, uh, you know, a 33 to 1 odds Jabor ticket does, uh, you know, at Wimbledon last year. But it still is, uh, it's, it's still a wrong price. Those, yep. those, in my mind and by my numbers, the Alcaraz and Djokovic prices that you're looking at on the screen right now should be flipped. Yeah. Well, yeah, Osterberg got the heart going at Wimbledon 33 to 1. They got the heart stopped. I mean, after that, I had a friend who had to go to hospital, uh, which won't go into the Like, it's just an absolutely ridiculous turn of events. Um, yeah, I think with Carlos, I think there's a pretty good chance Alcaraz is going to go down as like the greatest tennis player of all time when it's all awesome. said and done. Just in, like, he's definitely got that upside. And uh, at in New York at the US Open, he. He was playing, he went through stretches where he was playing tennis about as well as tennis can be played. Mm-hmm. But he kept on going five sets, even like some yeah. random players as well. Yeah. And he made really tough work of the final against Rude. I think he's probably worn out from all the five setters. And it just seems like, yeah, he just hasn't mastered the format, uh, which is understandable because he's, you know, he's so incredibly young. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's difficult taking a guy at plus 140, even if he is the most talented player. Um, when he just doesn't have the track record yet and has Novak Djokovic on uh, his side of the draw. Uh, last one on Roland Garros, Holger Rune uh, heads up quarters mm. three. Uh, is he the bet uh, in Q3? So at these prices, not for me. Uh, and this is tricky because uh, I, 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 lo- I like Rune's game. Like I'm a, I'm not like a fan of his tennis and he's kind of a little bit of a psycho, but I believe in him ultimately reaching the Alcaraz sort of circle in terms of ceiling because he is a psycho (laughs) and he does like have like a killer's mentality on the court, which you need uh, if you're going to be a slam champion at some point. Um, The problem in, in a lot of the same ways you were kind of pointing to uh, Alcaraz's inexperience showing uh, is Rune's inexperience is absolutely on display as well. Uh, He is playing way too much tennis. He is a much better player than some of these players he's dropping sets to in this run-up to Roland Garros, and he has put in a ton of time on the court so far this season. His style of tennis in particular is amazing for clay. It's amazing. 
Like he is generating his own power. He is coming up with winning shots that are impossible to return. And that is what you absolutely have to have in your tool bag. If you are going to win, uh, you know, at the elite level in men's tennis, uh, the problem is it's really tough on your body. And he has been playing too much tennis, in my opinion, to realistically think he is not ripe for uh, a letdown at some stage before he gets deep into this tournament. Uh, and part of my opinion there is shaded by price. Plus 115. It's, it's just not anywhere close to good enough to get involved with here. My numbers say Rune, his quarter price should be about plus 228 come out of Q3, which is the weakest quarter in the men's draw. And you're yep. currently looking at a market that says plus 115. So I think almost certainly we have to shop for a better price. Um, and, you know, Casper Rude is a bet against. I'm not sure if you followed really what has happened to him this so far this season, but his form has completely fallen apart. He played too much tennis last year, too deep into the calendar, didn't give himself a break, you know, the normal rest and recovery. Came back and tr he's been trying to find some form. He's been dropping points because he isn't going as far in certain tournaments. Uh, and he even played a pre, you know, he pre played a warm up tournament this week as opposed to just getting ready for this tournament. And people would ask you, well, why is he there? What is he, he just wants to get like a warm up match in or two? No, he is there to try to get points because he does not think he's going to be able to defend his final points from Roland Garros last year, which means his ranking will plummet, which means in general, it's going to be tougher for him to win tournaments later this season. So a uh, little bit of panic in the rude camp. I think he's a bet against, which brings us to the third choice here, Taylor Fritz, who didn't play clay at all last year. He was injured after uh, he was injured after um, Indian Wells, of course, beating uh, Nadal amazingly in the final at Indian Wells last season. Uh, after injuring that ankle, he took off clay season. He's been playing well on clay this year. Not well enough to say that he should be close to the favorite price in this market, but definitely closer uh, to the favorite than 10 to 1. I like his spot on the draw. I like his head-to-head -head win against Rune in Miami this year. That's a positive for me because I thought Rune was very dangerous in that tournament generally. So Taylor Fritz, 10 to 1, I think is a very good bet in Q3. And whereas Kuder Matova, 18 to 1 in Q1, that's a little bit of a prayer. This to me feels actually like there's a realistic chance he wins. Fritz plays great at the best of five level. He is a little bit, he's mastered the, the format a little bit better than some of these younger players. So uh, let's go with uh, Taylor Fritz, 10 to 1. I like it. Uh, I think with Kasper Ruud, he goes through stretches where his backhand looks like mine. And I, <laughs> I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't making US Open finals like Kasper. Just He's got a ripping forehand and a kind of sneakily effective surf, but the backhand just goes. Uh, and uh, I got to see yeah. your backhand now. <laughs> yeah, it sounds be, like yeah, it's pretty good. I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be allowed to compare it to Kasper Ruud's, but I'm doing it because his is that bad at times. Speaking of bad at times, Drew, the Miami Heat, last night, uh, we have a series. We have a real series now. The Celtics are plus 115. Uh, they're even plus 110 some spots to win sure. the series. They're three-point favorites in game six, and uh, I think they're going to do it. I think they're going to be the first team to come from 3-0 down. I think they're going to win in Miami. And if they win in Miami, they're going to be like 10-point favorites in game seven. Uh, and I yeah. think that if it comes back to Boston for game seven, I would, and I know it's like it's the Celtics and it's Jimmy Butler and they've won twice already, I would be stunned if the Heat won a game seven in Boston. So for me, this is largely the series on Saturday night. And I have a theory about the Celtics that I think that Brown and Tatum on offense are not particularly cerebral players, neither are great passes. But I think the longer a series goes, 
the easier it gets for them on offense just because they have more familiarity. The reads become easier. Tatum last night, I mean, that was one of the best, that might have been the best passing game of his career. And I think that the fact that they've now, they're just getting great shots. It feels like they've solved the zone. And there's just Mm -hmm. feedback loops with that and their defense where they weren't forcing turnovers in the regular season. I don't really understand how it's happened, but it seems like they've just made a few tweaks where now they're committed to switching everything. They're not leaving Derek White on an island against Jimmy. They're shading help from the right places. Every time Bam Adebayo dribbles, they're going at him, and he's had 10 turnovers in the past two games. Gabe Vincent being out is a huge deal because Kyle Lowry has turned into a pumpkin. Lowry (laughs) turnovers last night. I was talking about this with a friend um, this morning that Lowry, like they're making Lowry go deep into the paint now. They're not letting him pull up and they're not giving him space there. They're making him go into the paint and he doesn't want to shoot over Rob Williams. And so he's throwing the ball around and he's just turning it over like a madman. Uh, And so I think that Lowry, like Lowry might just be washed up and washedness surfaces a lot more when you have to go deep into the paint as opposed to when you're allowed to be a jump shooter. So all of this, I think the Celtics are going to win. But uh, where's your head at? I I can't disagree with you. And it's funny because like the narrative-y kind of roller coaster of people talking about the series and public models out there giving percent, like it's been a weird week <laughs> and I, like just kind of listening to the discourse it's it's been it's kind of insane actually um and i think we're actually at a point where the celtics are underrated somehow by the market i don't know that i completely agree with this price at three considering the current availability of players for the heat i mean like let's be honest they're running out of, of warm bodies yep i mean is kevin love playable in game six and seven i don't think so. probably I think not so. Yeah. And, and and this isn't based on injury. This is just based on his role and what the Celtics have solved. His, you know his particular ability to be on the floor. Uh, and you have a situation where you know, now Gabe Vincent, even if he is available in Game Six, like limited physically, is a problem. Uh, Caleb Martin took some damage last night, which you know will be interesting to see if he is like completely healthy and you know game you know live for Game Six. But um, yeah, the the Heat are in deep deep trouble right now just in terms of of uh, warm bodies and so for those reasons i think the celtics probably are the bet still on the series line at plus 130 um i feel like that should be pick them uh you're getting 30 cents for free there because of the imbalance in in you know i don't know why i mean i guess it's it's the math of minus 150 times what you saw in game seven but like that's not going to be the market for game seven what you saw last night if the celtics win this game it's going up. I think this game should be four. I'm not laying the three. I think the better bet is under 211. Um, and honestly, I think under 211 is a little bit of a, you know protecting your series position a bit because if the Celtics, you know, like if their garbage shooting that they had in game three shows up in game six, they might lose. But they certainly are not breaking 211 in this one. Like this is now going to turn into a rock fight. I could see this landing under 200. I'm going to play some alt-unders in game six. And I think this, uh, I hope we get a game seven because uh, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. And I would say if you want to back the series, just back Jason Tatum, Eastern Conference Finals MVP. Because he's close to a 100% chance to win. And it's like an extra 10, 15 cents on top of the price. I wouldn't back... I don't think I'd back 100 to 1 that a non-Celtic wins MVP over Tatum. And it's the last thing. Like, the whole whole idea has been that, well, just shooting variants, the Heat will get a game. 
you can't really have shooting variants as much if you're not allowed to take any threes, which the Celtics have taken away. He put up 23 threes, and obviously there's shooting variants on the Celtics' side where they could be colder. But the Heat put up 23 threes last night, and some of them are just getting blocked as well. <laughs> yes. Jimmy Butler, so there's no shooting variance on the blocked threes. So I think the Celtics, look, I think the variance is more that I'm not sure they can bring that effort every night like they have the past six quarters. But, I mean, it's two games now. It's very, very doable, yeah. and, uh, and I think they're going to do it. But uh, we'll check in Monday to break that all down, hopefully, for my and your sakes, that we're previewing Game 7 uh, on Monday. But for now, don't forget to check out NBCSportsEdge.com for more information to help you with your wages. Thanks, everyone, listening in podcast form. Please rate and subscribe to us from Jake Croucher and Drew Good luck with your bets. Good luck to the Boston Celtics, and we'll see you on Monday.